Thank you for joining us for this part two discussion with Dr. Cinda Rushton, talking about wellness and well-being in nurses and nurse educators. Thank you for joining us again. So this area, this topic of a psychologically safe environment, um, I know I'll speak for you, Rachel, that because I know you so well, um, that it resonates deeply with us. And it's we've always talked about how it's not a one and done kind of situation. It has to be, um, you kind of almost have to create it for yourself internally first, right? What do I believe? What are what is my philosophy of teaching, of, of professional practice? Cinda, you did a beautiful job um, in the R3 program of talking about identifying our core values. What are the one or two or three things that really create your structure in which you operate morally, ethically, emotionally, right? And you can lead with that. So this idea of, you know, exploring our ourselves as teachers um, or mentors, our psychologically safe um, kind of uh, landscape, and then creating it, and then checking in and maintaining it, and evaluating it, is this still feeling you know, like a container that we're learning and um, risk can happen, you know, and vulnerability. Um, and then reestablishing it from time. Sometimes it starts falling, you know, the wheels start falling yeah. off and you're like, uh-oh, you know, particularly after an exam, perhaps the wheels start falling off and learn, you know, our learners get upset. They activate emotionally because of all kinds of really important emotions, disappointment, fear, anxiety, uh, do I belong here, right? So all of this comes up in the classroom. And if we don't know what to do with that <laughs> or how to respond or, and then we don't know, sometimes unconsciously, again, we're absorbing all of this and we may not know how to respond in that moment. And we may shut down in, in a lack of just not knowing what to do. So I think about that. I mean, I think that experience happens in the classroom that I just described, but it happens in the the uh, nursing unit, you know, in the nurses unit in the in the hospital, it happens in community practice. It happens everywhere, um, and I feel like I just commend you for creating these modules and awareness and skills and knowledge where people content where people can just um, learn how to do this and have more awareness about it. <laughs> you know, it's not like we got a playbook. You know, and you know, I think back on my own career. I, I, part of the reason I got involved in in um, these ethical issues is as a pediatric ICU nurse, I was involved in hard decisions at a time when technology was advancing, hopefully to benefit children and and youth, but. There was also a, a downside of that, and we didn't know what those limits were. But the distress that I experienced, I didn't have a name for. I didn't know what to even call it, you know. And so I think we're in a similar situation now where, you know, everybody sort of attached themselves to the burnout narrative. But I, I don't think it's actually precise enough for us to locate what the source of this distress actually is. Because if we can't make a, an accurate diagnosis, we cannot decide what the solution is. We can't figure that out. So 
I think it's creating spaces where we can unpack, you know, like what's really at stake here? What What's going on? Um, and we have a pretty impoverished vocabulary about how we're feeling. Right. And so we say, you know, Michelle, I'm fine. Well, I'm not fine. Actually, I, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling afraid or I'm feeling I am feeling anxious. So some of it is also expanding the vocabulary so that when we are asked, you know, how are you? Instead of creating a mask that is really not an honest response, I'm not actually okay. And being able to have a norm and a culture where we can be honest with each other. You know what? I'm kind of struggling today. I'm having a hard time focusing. I'm distracted because of something that happened at home before I came here. Um, that would be a different kind of environment than, you know, everybody just soldiering on. And I'm hoping that maybe this pandemic will open up that possibility for us that we can turn toward our limitations with a little more compassion in the way that we're compassionate to the people we're trying to serve. We also need that toward ourselves. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, Senda. And I think this idea of changing the how are you from a rhetorical question to a genuine curious question and holding space for that response is so important. And when I think about that, it takes me back to this quote that at first may not seem applicable here, but I read it on social media the other day. It talks about as a parent, the more I become skilled at being a parent, I realize it's not about managing my child's emotions and behaviors. It's about managing my parent emotions and parent behaviors. And I think there's a nod from that that can apply here in that if we're going to hold this space, if we're going to model this for our students, um, it really becomes first and foremost the priority of learning the language and the noticing skills and the management skills for ourselves before we can start really genuinely holding space for others. You know, we often say you can't give what you don't have yourself. And what I see happening a lot with, I mean, all of us, uh, nurses, but also faculty members, is we are so quick to focus on our students, to focus on the patients, as if we ourselves don't matter. and. You know, our, our code of ethics is really clear. Nurses have the same duties to self as to others, including preserving their well-being and integrity. So we have a tendency to count ourselves out of the equation. And our code is clear that we have to count ourselves in. We have to invest in ourselves to be good stewards of our scarce resources, ourselves, our energy, our time, our knowledge, our skills. And that's not something somebody else can do for you. That is an internal, personal journey of trying to figure out what that looks like. And part of it is, I think, reframing asking for help as an act of weakness and seeing it 
actually is an act of integrity, of being able to know myself well enough that I know what I need and I know where to find the resources that will support me. And and that is a shift, I think, that could help us engage in integrity-preserving choices rather than reinforcing a victim narrative and one of being disempowered that I have no choice. I, I think we always have choices. I also think, I love what you're saying, you know, there's this side of asking for help, identifying that help is needed, and then having the courage to ask for help. And then the other side that would be really wonderful is if it, that ask for help could be met with what happened to you. I read that book by Oprah Winfrey mm -hmm. and Dr. Bruce Perry that is trying to change the narrative from what is wrong with you to what happened to you. So if somebody has the courage to ask for help, that they could be met with this, you know, share with me what's happening for you or what happened to you. And then it could be this opportunity for the person that could be a signal to check in. Well, what did happen? Why am I feeling this way? What is what is bubbling under the surface that I can't quite, um, you know, identify? And, you know, to, to make a little connection to nerdy brain science, you know, with situational awareness, we as humans are really bad at keeping ourselves situationally aware. We need another person to tap us on the shoulder and say, uh, do you see what's going on? <laughs> so we can't do that ourselves sometimes. We need help. So even when we're asking for help, the other person might need, you know, that 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 dialogue and that connection can really advance the the whole situation. The yeah. whole thing. We we need we need um investments on both sides of the equation, right? And, and so as faculty members, we can be part of that in, in creating the environment, but we've got to do our own human homework before we engage in that. It's not like a transactional, you know, let me read the script. That's only going to get you started. That's not going to actually solve the problem. And at the same time, then, how do we create learning opportunities with students. When, when things happen, and another uh, module we created was around when hard things happen. So, you know, your first code, your first patient death, your first mistake, the first time some, some person is uh, yelling at you, whether it's a patient or somebody else, how do you process that? personally and in collective relationship with your colleagues. And it, it, it's a it's it's going to happen. So how do we anticipate that? You know, instead of being surprised by, oh, <laughs> this is a reality. And giving people a chance to to explore that in in a lower risk, kind of search circumstance, you know, so simulation is a great place where that can happen, you know, of it's not only doing the code, it's having a part of your simu simulation, which is about, okay, how do we honor the life that just ended? How do we incorporate a ritual at the end of that process that acknowledges our humanity and our own experience? 
And then how do we move from that into a debriefing of how we process the emotional dimension of that? Those are are not soft skills. Those are actually fundamental skills that are necessary to sustain us in our profession, especially if you're working in an environment where those things come up frequently. So, Cinda, someone comes up to you and says, everything you're saying is resonating with me. I want to think more about this, think deeper about this. Where would you direct them to go? Where should they start if they really just want to dive into thinking in this space and building some of the skills necessary to tackle these difficult questions? Well, I think there are just many doorways. There's not just one. And I think people have to start where you are. You know, and one place you can start is just taking stock yourself of how am I doing right now? What's working? What's not working? Um, in And really exploring what's missing, what's missing from my, my life and my work? Where am I getting energy and where is it being depleted? And how can I get more of those energy producing things in my life? Um, so there's there's a there's a I think a discernment part, you know, to start with. And um it's also exploring our our assumptions about ourselves. You know, we've had this talk about words. <laughs> Self-care, you know, became this thing. Oh, that's self-indulgent. That's selfish. That's, you know, that's for somebody else. I don't have time for that. So in our work, we shifted to self-stewardship because self-stewardship is about knowing yourself well enough to know what nourishes you and what depletes you and to know that you are deserving of that investment because you are a human being. And that that also involves turning toward our challenges and our edges with compassion rather than judgment, and then being willing to take the steps to choose how you're going to allocate your scarce resources of your life, your energy, your knowledge skills in a way that really reflects who you are and why you're here. And so that is a lifelong process, I think. It's not a one and done. It's not like you can go and get the, the checklist. <laughs> it really does in, in, invite us to, to create space for that kind of exploration, to be curious, to remember, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a knitter. So I started knitting in the second grade. I stopped knitting for a period of time. And one of the things that I realized as I was doing my own self-assessment, when I pushed and pushed and pushed to the point where I was kind of burned out. And I started thinking about what were the things I really loved to do. So I went to the yarn store. And I touched all the yarn and I found some really beautiful yarn and a, and a pattern. And I decided I was going to knit again. I haven't stopped since. 
But it's that kind of remembering. What what is it that brings me joy? What is it that nourishes me in my ability to show up every day? What can I start doing to end the day to lighten my load, to let go of what's not mine to carry and how I can let go of those self-limiting beliefs so that I can arrive at home with my family without all this stuff in my backpack that's dragging me down. So those are some of the things, you know, it's like start where you are and be curious, take some risks. If it doesn't work, do something else. Well, I... So I realize, good. I hope our listeners realize that um, you all have human homework to do. <laughs> I love that saying. I'm going to use that. Um, if you don't mind, Cinda, with your permission, um, we all have human homework to do. So uh, starting with ourselves and kind of taking inventory can be a wonderful place to start. Um, so thank you. And kind of finding what what energizes you, what fills your, your cup, um, and that you can you know, then that, that gets shared, you know, that resonates and that kind of positive energy shares, um, you know, is shared with others. So thank you, Cinda. Um, I I'd like to, if it's okay with you, um, Rachel, I'm going to see if we can ask Cinda some questions, rapid fire questions. Sounds good. All right. Just to get to know you a little bit more, Cinda, um, if you were to write a memoir, what would you title the book? The long and winding road. <laughs> I was thinking human human homework again. I was like, maybe everyone needs to have their human homework and you can have a book called. Oh gosh. Yeah, it's been quite <laughs> a long and winding road, actually. Um, life is full of surprises. I guess that's what I'd say. Wonderful. So what is on the top of your reading list right now for fun? The fun reading list is very limited right now because I am working on a second edition of our book. So I'm not reading a lot of fun things at the moment. Um, but I am, um, you know, the things that are really, I'm really drawn to is uh, one book is by Christiana Furetes, who was one of the Paris Climate Accord architects, about how to be a persistent optimist in the midst of all of this, you know, the climate catastrophe, and how do we meet that moment, which is not so different from what we're trying to do in healthcare. And um, what is your favorite quote? I have so many. Um, his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says, when you meet real tragedy in life, you can meet it in one of two ways. Either losing hope and falling into self-destructive habits or using the experience to find your inner strength. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And uh, lastly, if you could have dinner with one person, uh, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, gosh, there's a lot of people. Um, Nelson Mandela. I would love to chat with him. 
Absolutely. An inspiration, indeed. Um, Senda, thank you so much for uh, giving of yourself and your insight and your wisdom and talking with us. I've learned a lot. I certainly needed to hear a lot of it. So I'm sure others did as well. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And um, thank you for creating the space for this conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of NLN Nursing Edge Unscripted Surface. We hope you join us next time. Until then, remember, whether your water is calm or choppy, stay connected, get vulnerable, and dare to go beneath the surface.